Hey everybody, uh, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I am grateful for you listening to the 71st episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. We're going to be worth your time again this week. Uh, first with two important points about the Chiefs, then with Chiefs-heavy questions. You're asking about Josh Gordon. You're asking about how much of a one-and-two stink this Chiefs team carries. Uh, you're asking about Frank Clark, and we get our first call from a non-human. I'm not joking. Um, okay, uh, the bonus section is with J.J. Piccolo, the new Royals general manager, but a guy that I'm not sure how much Royals fans really know about. Um, there's a column up on the website right now, so between that and this bonus section, I'm hoping you'll feel like you know a little bit about him. Um, okay, there's two things about the Chiefs that I really want to hit on right here at the top, and I usually like to keep this to just one topic at the top and just kind of go all in, but I don't feel like we can do that this week. So um, here we're going to do both. This is like a, a, a BOGO podcast or something, um, even though the show is free, but whatever, you get the point. Um, all right, one topic I want to talk about, the other I sort of feel like we have to. Let's start with the have to. Um, it's Andy Reid. And I haven't said or written much about this because I, you know, you just don't want to speculate about well, anything, but especially like somebody's health. And, um, you know, there are a lot of reports out there. The Chiefs weren't saying much. And the only thing I really felt strongly about with the whole thing was just kind of hoping the man's okay. You know what I mean? And and the good news is that that is apparently the case. Like Reed is, is back at work. He's running practice, game planning, coaching, you know, doing all the things. And, you know, look, if, if you think – to the media and to the public, if you think like Reed or the Chiefs are pretty vague about things normally, they are on another level with this. And the the Chiefs have only described it as an illness. And, you know, Reed didn't really even do that um, in his first meeting with reporters the other day. Um, basically, all he said was that he felt good. Um, you know, Vahe asked the question and, and Andy basically just allowed that he might have to change some of his routines. Um, but, you know, nobody really knows what that means. And, you know, Vahe wrote a column about this, and, and I'm sure he'll make his point better than I'll make mine here. But I just want to say that this does not feel like a thing where we're just like in the clear here, you know, or or have worried about Andy for the last time. And, you know, let's be real. Like he's 63. Um, he's in one of the more stressful jobs that we have in this country, right? Um not exactly known for keeping the best eating habits. He's a bigger guy, spent part of training camp on a cane. Um, you know, he must carry a weight that I really can't imagine, um, you know, after his son's car wreck in February. Um, that's a lot. And, um, you know, Andy is one of the most popular and beloved people in the league and for good reason. And, um, you know, the way the news of him leaving Arrowhead in an ambulance after the game on Sunday um, that really hit people hard and, um, they put their prayers up and, you know, in real time, that was mostly about him getting rest and getting back home. But, you know, now that he's back at work, I don't know. I, I, I guess what I'm saying here is that I, I, I hope that Andy does change some habits and, and I hope that he does do the things he needs to have the best health going forward. I know he has a great support system. Um, and that includes you guys, that includes Chiefs fans, right? Um, but without knowing more, it's just, it's really hard not to wonder when or if there might be another scare, you know? Um, I know we're all hoping for the best. Um, okay, um, I also wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about the game this week and about football. And um, you know what's funny is like people that have these weird jobs like mine, uh, we tend to look at things in terms of storylines. 
you know, and, and this game this weekend in Philadelphia was pretty straightforward. You know what I mean? You've got Andy Reid, you know, going back to the place he's coached 14 years and, you know, four consecutive NFC championship games, including the Super Bowl. You've got Travis Kelsey playing against his brother Jason's team. I mean, those are pretty like tidy and obvious and fairly compelling things, right? Even, you know, and I think that's true, even as we all understand the Chiefs and Eagles have played a few times already, um, you know, under the same stories, including once in Philadelphia. But um, that stuff's basically out the window now, right? Um, I don't know, maybe not out the window, but certainly pushed down the list a little bit of things that people are interested in, I think, because the Chiefs are one and two. And, you know, like Dave Tobe said after the Chargers game, they are at a crossroads. And um, I want to make a point here that, that some of you might not really like, um, but that is objectively true, which is that at the moment, the Chiefs are closer to like that rotten recent history of Super Bowl, Super Bowl losers than they are, you know, this dominant AFC favorite that we all thought just a couple of weeks ago. And I want to emphasize the point here real quick by just running down the last 10 Super Bowl losers. And um, and how they fared the next year. Okay, look, the 2011 Steelers. Um, you know that team had lost to the you know Aaron Rodgers only Super Bowl win so far. 2011 Steelers. The next year lost to Tim Tebow in overtime in Denver in the playoffs. I was I was actually at that game, and honestly, I still don't believe it. Uh, the the 2012 Patriots. Um, they went 12 and four, uh, league's top scoring offense, but they lost to Joe Flacco's Ravens in the Super Bowl and. Now that I think about it, I was at that game, too, and I still don't totally believe it. The 2013 49ers um, had a, a great regular season, um, but then they lost to the Seahawks in the NFC Championship game. Um, that was that was the Richard Sherman game uh, when, <laughs> when he went off on Michael Crabtree. And I look, I, I'm sorry. I know this is gratuitous. It's this is a not this is kind of a tangent. It's not about the Chiefs, but I just I love that rant so much that we just we we got to play it here real quick. Um, OK, Monty, hit it. So, okay, uh, just moving on. Um, after a blowout loss to the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, the 2014 Broncos went 12-4. and um, You know, Peyton Manning's really his last effective season. Um, I know they won the Super Bowl the next year, but anyway. Uh, but they lost in the playoffs to Andrew Luck in, in the divisional round, the 2015 Seahawks. Uh, they were good again in the regular season, but got hammered in the divisional round by by the Panthers, the 2016 Panthers. Went 6-10. and 10. Um, Cam Newton and the defense both really regressed. The 2017 Falcons uh, snuck into the playoffs um, and then lost in the divisional round. The 2018 Patriots, and uh, you know this is an exception and one you probably don't want to remember, but the 2018 Patriots won that crazy AFC Championship game at Arrowhead Stadium and then basically ended Jared Goff's time as a good quarterback in the Super Bowl. Um, so that's the exception. Then the 2019 Rams, they missed the playoffs at 9-7. The 2020 49ers just had a season wrecked by injuries, and they finished 6-10. Now, these precedents, like sometimes I think people like me, we make too much out of them because, you know, no two situations are the same. But that's a pretty well-established pattern in this league recently of teams that don't quite win the Super Bowl really struggling the next year. And that is the path that the Chiefs are on right now. 
right? Like, I think that's just a true fact. Like, the, that, that's the one that a lot of these talking head shows are emphasizing, um, you know. But I just want to say something about that right now. Uh, the Chiefs have their flaws. Like, that's not a surprise. Like, I, th- I think we all know about the flaws here. We've been talking about them since even before the losses, even before the regular season started, right? But um, I also think that this team has a lot of pride. And I think that that matters. I think emotion is important to this team. And honestly, I think we've seen that so many times already that it's hard to keep track. But, you know, I'm just thinking about the playoff comeback against the Texans. I'm thinking about, you know, Mahomes' run against the Titans. I'm thinking about, you know, remember when when Mahomes ran for that touchdown at the goal line um, in the Super Bowl and and the NFL films called me. He's like, I'm a beast down here, though. I'm a beast down here, though. Like that. That's emotion that, that is carrying the team. Wasp in the Super Bowl. That's emotion carrying the team. Um when they beat the brakes off the Ravens uh, in prime time last year, that was emotion. Um, the Super Bowl loss, blowout loss after Britt Reed's tragic car wreck, that was emotion. So I think if you want to create a situation where emotional is going to play a big part in a regular season game, I think you could do worse than the Hall of Fame and beloved coach coming back to work from the hospital and going to the place where he made such a big impact. You know what I mean? I just think about that context. And so, look, the Chiefs are a seven and a half point favorite, um, you know, against the Eagles on the road. Uh, so I'm not, you know, sitting here predicting that the sun comes up in the north or anything. But um, I will not be surprised if the Chiefs are up two or three scores before halftime. Um, you know, the, the the Eagles are kind of a mess right now. You know, the defense has actually been pretty good overall, but they're still working through some stuff with Jalen Hurts. Uh, but this Eagles team is coming off a blowout loss, uh, you know, to the Cowboys. And I just, I get the feeling that this is going to be another one for them. Um, I guess I'd put it like this. If, if the Chiefs don't win this one comfortably, I think we're going to have some serious conversations next week. But I think what's more likely than that is that the Chiefs win this one by double digits. Um, they beat the Bills at Arrowhead next week to, you know, sort of get their mojo back. And then run through the rest of the regular season with like, you know, one, maybe two losses, you know. Finish 14 and 3, 13 and 4. Those 17 game records still feel weird to me. But, um, you know, 13, 14 wins, uh, get a good playoff seed. And then we are right back where we thought we'd be talking about them, you know, as a Super Bowl favorite. So, um, you know, that's what it feels like to me anyway. And I guess before we go, I, I need to give you two caveats. Uh, the first is that, again, the Chiefs need to protect Andy Reid at all costs. And also, um, the second caveat is if I'm honest, <laughs> I didn't think there was much of a chance that the Chiefs were going to lose to the Chargers either uh, after what happened in Baltimore. So uh, you guys, I think you know this, but uh, take me for what I'm worth, right? Um, Okay, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, uh, here comes the spiel. Uh, Three ass, and you know we're still cool if you do two or one or even zero, but I got to do it. Um, The first, please help support us by giving the Sports Pass a try. A dollar a month for the first three months. Or $30 for a year. Just reach out to me, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and and I'll send the link to you. Um, The second, please rate and review us. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you for all the love you've given us already. Um, All the five-star ratings, subscriptions, all that stuff. I'm just saying, if you haven't already done that, um, if you haven't already given us a a rating and review, please do it. It really helps us get the word out. But um, five stars only, guys, uh, help us out. Now, the third thing I'm going to ask is that if you want to participate in next week's show, and I hope you do, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816 
8162344365. One more time, uh here's the number. Rewind it if you don't catch it clean. 8162344365. Um all right guys, appreciate you. Um quick break and then we're back with some questions. Hey Sam, John Lasseter calling you from Norway, Michigan. Big Chief fan here. Um calling in regards to what your thoughts are kind of thinking about this and uh the complexity of uh, Andy Reid's offense and how long it takes a wide receiver to get acclimated uh, with this offense. Considering Josh Gordon coming on board, um, they always say that the rookies just take so long to get acclimated and get the timing down and everything else. What difference is it going to be for Josh Gordon? So I'm kind of hesitant on really maybe seeing anything from him, uh, maybe until – later in the weeks of the season and not looking at two weeks uh, time frame, he might be able to get a go route and read a, a corner or safety, but, um, you know, on the coverages and have a few options on the coverages, but to get that timing down with the quarterback uh, does take some time. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on and other people's thoughts on that. Everybody's excited to get him, but I'm just looking at it. It, it could be some time before he really, really uh, contributes to this offense. Um, your thoughts are greatly appreciated. Have a good one. Later. Okay, uh, John, this is a smart question because Andy's offense is sort of, you know, famous. Like you said, it's famously difficult for young receivers to learn, you know, and there's real reasons for that. That's not just a thing that they talk about. Um, all the receivers have to learn all the positions. Um, you know, there's some sight reads in there where the receiver needs to see the same cues as the quarterback in real time in chaos during a play. And the whole thing is just built on intricate timing, you know, like a half step by the pulling guard a lot of times in a screen can be the difference between a 40-yard touchdown and a four-yard loss, you know what I mean? So this is all a big lift for a young receiver, you know, especially if you're coming from a program like, you know, Clemson or, or some of these others that don't necessarily like to complicate things for their players. Um, so Gordon, Josh Gordon is on a crash course here. And, you know, my guess is that he's getting extra time with coaches and even the quarterbacks. Like, you know, I'm just making a guess here, but I'd be surprised if Mahomes and Chad Henney, you know, aren't going to, you know, they're not taking extra time helping him along. So I do think the transition will be a little different here with Gordon. And and there's a few reasons. The first, and this matters, but you have to assume that Gordon is coming here with maximum motivation, you know, and look, maybe at some of his previous stops, you could have said something similar, but um, he's got some real real off-field stuff that he's got to control. And that is a real thing, especially as we get into the stress of a football season. But he's also 30 years old now, and that's not 40 or anything, but at some point, you know, he's got to know that these chances aren't lasting forever. Um, The second point, and I think this is important too, uh, the Chiefs see something in Gordon that they can use right now, you know, or else they don't do this move. So what I'm saying here is that as soon as the Chiefs are satisfied that Gordon is in the right shape, to play, you know, just physically in the right shape to play an NFL game, I think they're going to put him right in there, like in real situations with sort of like bite-sized pieces. Because if they decided, for instance, that Gordon's size and ball skills can be a weapon in the red zone, which I think they can, um, you know, they can sort of skip a few steps here and, and let him have a few different routes from the same spot on the field that can fit in, you know, with what everybody else is doing. This is not a rookie. He's not 21, 22. I mean, this guy is is 30 years old. He's been in the league. So I think that part of it can come a little quicker because, you know, just being honest here, like signing this guy, 
after the third game of the season and expecting him to have like a full year's worth of learning the playbook in a week or a month or whatever, that would be stupid, right? Um, and the Chiefs coaches are not stupid. So that's what I'm expecting, just a, a sort of like limited chunk of plays where the Chiefs can maximize what Gordon does best, you know, and integrate that into what they've already built and then just go from there. And if all this ends up being is a red zone target, you know, or even just a, a sort of up, upgrade over Demarcus Robinson. I mean, every little bit helps, right? So, um, okay, here's Phil. And uh, just Phil's not happy, but he does keep it clean, guys. So um, take it away, Phil. Sam, Phil and Charlotte, love your work, the podcast, the minutes, everything. I've got two questions for you, or a couple ideas I want your take. I've got some Chiefs cred, by the way, was at the 71 Christmas game. So I've been following the team for 50 years. And Bill Parcells used to say two things that stuck me. Um, one, don't eat the cheese. And the second is you are who your record says you are. So my take is I think the Chiefs, stars especially, have eaten a little bit too much cheese. And at one and two, they're not a very good team. You are who your record says you are. So I'd be interested in your take on those questions. And thanks so much for what you do. Well, first of all, um, I love cheese. All right. I just want to start there. I love cheese on my burgers, uh, my pasta, my salad, my nachos, even my fries. Uh, I love pimento cheese. I love Rotel with Velveeta, even though Velveeta is less a cheese and more of a cheese-like product. And while I think I understand what Parcells is saying, I would assume, and no offense to the coach, but I would assume that he's eaten some cheese in his life too. So now, yes, the Chiefs are one and two. That is true. Um, they're in last place and they have a bunch of things they need to fix. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that and we'll spend more time talking about it as long as those problems persist. But the problem with the way that Parcells quote, you are what your record says you are, the problem with that is that it allows people to push this idea that all one and two teams are the same, you know, and gather around for a little story. In 2012, it had become really clear that the Chiefs were going nowhere with the leadership that they had in place. They got blowed out by the Falcons at home in the opener. And after that, they got blowed out again in Buffalo the next week. Um, and after that game, Kent Babb uh, and I went off. Um, in the paper about it. And we basically buried the team um, because they deserved it. And and I remember calling someone in the organization the next day just to sort of raise my hand a bit and say like, hey, I wrote this um, and I'm, this is me being accountable. So if there's anything you want to say to me in response, you know, let me hear it. And the person I was talking to basically said like, look, um, I get it. It doesn't look good right now, but I think you were premature. I think you wrote this too early. It's still September. You know, we just won the division two years ago and the 2011 series is wrecked by injuries. Um, you know, so who's to say that we can't go on a run here? And if we go on a run, then what would you write after that? That, that, was, that was the point. And that's, I don't know, that's a fine point, right, as far as it goes. But um, I'll tell you this, the next week, she's actually beat the Saints. They beat the Saints in New Orleans in overtime. And I'm here to tell you the Chiefs were then one and two, same record they are now. But there was not a single person in that organization who called or texted or anything to say, hey, you blasted us last week. Looks pretty stupid now, buddy boy, you know, because they knew, you know, um, and that team lost all but one of their remaining 13 games. 
And the whole organization changed after that. And, and my point here is that sometimes a one and two team is cooked like dinner. And sometimes it's a team that just needs to stop beating itself. And I have my guess on which of those tracks this Chiefs team is more likely to go down. Um, okay, one more Chiefs question. Hey, Sam. It's Dave from Albany, New York. Albany is not a hotbed of uh, professional sports teams and or college teams. So, you know, I have a limited experience. I, I think you're one of the best sports writers in America. And I'm not just blowing it up there. I just I just think you're great. I just really think you uh you got your pulse on the team, you got your pulse on the community and I love it. And I love reading your stuff. Love listening to you. But you know, after the latest debacle, I just I just gotta think that uh you know could it be in the best interest of the team to just rip the Band-Aid off and just get rid of Frank Clark right now, just outright release him? I know somebody will pick him up, maybe, but uh, just get rid of him. He's done nothing since the Super Bowl year. You know, I don't know about this team. I think that, uh, you know, all of the fortunate things that have happened in the Years past have uh, caught up to us, and we have no luck right now. I don't even know if luck is the right term, but things just aren't clicking. We just, you know, we can't do it. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, we're not, I don't know. The offense does good. The defense does bad. It's just there's no continuity. I know there's uh, 14 games left in the season. But, you know, one and two, this is not what we're used to. And I am I know people are dropping F-bombs and calling. I, I can understand it, you know. So, anyway, thanks so much for all the work you do and uh, your thoughts. Just should we get rid of them right now? Just get it over with. So I've, I've heard this question a few different times um, or versions of it. So I wanted to do it here. And, you know, those of you who want Clark gone are not going to like the answer. But here it is anyway. Um, he'd cost more money to cut him right now than to keep. And this is the part you're really not going to like. He's actually one of their better defenders. Uh, don't yell at me. Um, you know, I get that he's become unreliable like week to week with this hamstring thing. And I'm not making the case that in 2021 he's worth that, you know, $37 million cap hit. Uh, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm telling you is that his contract was structured in a way that the first three years were basically guaranteed and that the fourth year, which is next season, uh, he can be cut for some cap savings. And I expect the Chiefs to do just that. But in the meantime, I also think the Chiefs can use his strength in setting the edge against the run. And, you know, he gets the occasional one on one win against a lineman, you know, to move the line of scrimmage and wreck a play. So. That's a valuable thing, especially for this defense. If you cut him, you're replacing him with somebody who's not as good, you know. Um, and it's a complicated thing with Frank. Um, you know, these three years, I look, I don't think it's fair to say that the trade and contract was a mistake because he was a key part of a Super Bowl win, which is the thing that matters the most, right? But I also don't think anybody would ever say that it's been a great investment you know, it's just it, that whole thing is really complicated. I know, I know he's going to 
leave a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of Chiefs fans, and I get it. Uh, but that Super Bowl happened, and and his contributions to that were enormous and real. And this is just, I don't know, this Frank Clark thing, this is one of those things, like, you can take either side and just, like, close your ears like Lloyd Christmas and Dumb and Dumber and scream your point about it repeatedly and feel strong in your heart that you're right. Um, and you can do that on either side, you know, which <laughs> I guess sort of means it's the perfect topic for modern America, right? But um, that's probably a for a different show, not mine. <laughs> um, all right, guys, here is the weirdest voicemail um, I got this week. Uh, <laughs> just here it is. Uh, I'm so sorry. My dog actually hung up on you, but they did have a question. <laughs> And uh, go Chiefs. <laughs> so uh, at this point, we we'll probably just need to move on. <laughs> all right, guys. All right. Uh, one more quick break, and then we're back with uh, Royals general manager, J.J. Piccolo. Okay, guys, uh, let's finish strong. And I was thinking the other day that J.J. Piccolo has been in Kansas City for 15 years. Uh, he has been an integral part of everything the Royals have done, including the 2014 pennant and the world championship the next year. And now he's the new general manager. And it just it occurs to me that Royals fans probably don't know a whole lot about him. So I wanted to change that a little bit, which is uh, why there's a column online about JJ uh, and the move right now. And I wanted you to be able to hear directly from him here. Uh, his words. So uh, I'm not going to pretend that JJ and I are our best friends. Like, you, you know, my thing, right? Like, I want all of us to keep in mind that we really don't know athletes and coaches uh, as well as we sometimes think we do. But I have known JJ for 15 years. Um, and I'm just telling you here, man, he, he is sharp. He is fully bought in and committed. Um, he can do a lot of different things. Well, um, he's really hard not to like uh, he's really bad at self-promotion <laughs> and that's actually, that's been a bit of a running joke, um, that I've had with him actually. Uh, but I, I really do think that if JJ was a little more like into sizzle and a little less into steak, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think there's a chance that he'd have been a GM already. Um, you know, I say that, but you know, maybe if you take your eye off the job that you have and then you're maybe not worth the one that you, that he just got. Right. So, um, I guess my point here is that what you hear from JJ will not be about sales. You know, that's not what he does. Um, yeah, he's not going to be trying to spin people. Um, he speaks from the heart. He credits others. Um, I just think you're really going to like him. But um, like I said, I, I want you to make up your own mind on this. So I'm going to play three clips from a conversation we had recently. Uh, the first is his response to me making just a, a basic observation, which is that, you know, JJ's had a million different jobs in the Royals front office over the years. But uh, his most recent one had him in uniform, uh, implementing some really major changes to the Royals minor league system. Um, you know, and what information is used, how it's worked, how it's communicated. And this isn't a normal progression. Um, not anymore. Going from being in uniform to the GM of a big league team. So um, anyway, I, I made that point, And here's how JJ talked about that. Yeah, I think years ago uh, may have been more of a model. I mean, the, when the, the makeup of the GM was... You know, more former player turned coach turned front office, but I'm talking decades ago. Um, you know, but what, what, one of the things that Dayton shared with me when he asked me to get into uniform was how it would prepare me better 
to be a general manager in, in today's climate, uh, given my background. Um, yeah. You know, it allowed me to try to bring, you know, our analytic and, and data science together with our, you know, sort of our traditional coaching staff. Yeah. And it allowed that flow of communication to be a little bit more natural because I was in uniform. He was very convicted at the time that it would, it would prepare me to be a general manager the way today's general manager job description sort of, sort of speaks. Um, he thought it would better prepare me. And at the time, I, yeah, I've always trusted and believed, you know, you know, whatever you're going to be, be a good one. You know, it's an Abraham Lincoln quote that mm-hmm. I've got, I've had on my desk forever. Uh, my parents gave it to me, and with these multiple, uh, you know, or I shouldn't say multiple, but with all the different roles I've had, I've always thought I just got to be the best at what I'm doing. So I hadn't heard that Lincoln quote before. Um, you probably have, but um, it's a great line, right? And and it really fits that picture that I've always had about JJ. I I, I guess I talked about that earlier, right? Like if if you're focused on being good at what you are, you're not worried so much about the next thing. You know, and you're not trying to tell people how good you are to get that next job. And um, I just I, I think that's a really sound, sane, <laughs> effective, admirable way to go about things. So, um, OK, here, here's JJ talking a little bit about his skill set. And I want you to listen carefully because I think he's really describing himself well here. You know, I'll, I'll never profess to be uh you know, an expert on data analysis, you know, that's not my thing, but I, I understand, you know, a lot of it. Um, and I think I've been understanding how to integrate it and yeah. how to get buy-in from staff. Um, you know, and that, that's ultimately what I think a general manager needs to do. You know, that's how you lead. Uh, I think that's how, what farm directors do, scouting directors do. Um, you you got to get your audience, your, your, your staff to buy into what we're doing. And, We've we've never been, and you and I have talked about this before. We've never been early adapters, uh, but we've been adapters. I mean, we've we've adapted over time, um, yeah. but there it's always been with caution, and then you want to do it with knowledge, and then you, you if you don't do it with knowledge and have a clear plan on how you want to implement, it's never going to be accepted. You know, it's always easy to yeah. resist change and do what you've always done. So you got to have a, a plan on how you want to do it, and I think just going through that. Being in uniform for those two years, you know, just helped me articulate and get the buy-in that we needed uh, from our coaching staff because we just were not going to clean house and start over with a bunch of new coaches that we don't know their backgrounds and, you know, maybe lack of experience compared to the guys we had on staff. We just thought it was a better way to go, you know, try to blend the two worlds. So, I don't know. I, I just think that's really smart and you know, if you think about it, like, I think it's really applicable outside of baseball. You know what I mean? Like, and JJ's, he doesn't think like that. He's not, he's just talking about himself and this specific experience he's had. But I think you can extrapolate that a little. And, you know, and if you did, I think it would go something like this. Like, there's a lot of people who don't know who or what they are, you know, and maybe they pretend you know, maybe they try to fake it. Uh, maybe they try to get a little bit of new experience and pretend that it's a lot, you know, whatever. And I think eventually those people sort of show themselves, you know, they expose themselves. Um, and I think what JJ's done, and, and he wouldn't put it this way. Um, he just wouldn't. But I think what he's done is not worry about those outside voices or factors and, you know, just concentrate on the work 
and focus solely on that task and do it as well as you can. Um, I think that's what he's done. And, you know, now he's the Royals GM. So, um, okay. Anyway, one more clip here. And this is like sort of JJ's origin story into professional baseball. And uh, it's a bit of a long clip, um, but I love this. And and I think that this is probably the clip where you're going to get the best sense of, of who JJ is. Um, okay, here it goes. So I, I was asked this within the last week too. So when I when I left coaching, I, I had every intention of being a, a head coach in college. That's what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. Um, for whatever reason, you know, had some people reach out to get into scouting. But when Dayton reached out about uh, a job that was going to be open where I lived, it got my attention a little bit more. You know, I, I played for Dayton. Um, and I, and I dove into it. I went, I went to scout school and I remember being there for basically two to two days of a 10 day program. And I called my wife and, and said, this is what I want to do. Like for whatever reason, you know, being on a field, I wasn't uh, as fulfilled as, as I thought I was going to be. Um, you know, I, I love that it was a hundred percent baseball, you know, the recruiting part of it. You know, the, the talent identification is one thing when you're recruiting, then the recruiting is a whole nother thing. You know, so yeah, you, yeah. you know, probably 80% of what you do when you're the recruiting coordinator for a college is you're recruiting. You know, your time on the field is not as, um, uh, fulfilling as you, you might think it would be. And that's what I really liked. It's just the baseball part of it. So being in that scout school, I saw it as an opportunity to just dive into baseball. Um, and so, but when I took that job, and I, t- I tell this to, I get a lot of people wanting to get jobs, first-time jobs, and you know, you get the answer, you know, what's your ultimate goal? I want to be a general manager. Okay, well, how are you going to become a general manager? And I always share this with people. When I took that job, my wife was about to have her first child. It actually turned turned 22 today, or it has turned 22 oh. today. So it was it was late August. I was offered a job. I accepted it on November or oh, I'm sorry, uh, September 1st. And three weeks later, our oldest was born. But I remember telling Nicole because the job paid less than what I was making in college, and she had a hard time understanding why I would take less money sure. and want to travel more uh, than what I'm doing now. And I said, Look, I'm, I want to give this seven years. And the only reason I had seven in my mind was because. At that point, Michael, you know, we didn't know it was going to be a boy or if it was a boy or a girl at the time, but at that point, if it was a boy and I didn't enjoy it, I would figure out what I'm going to do and I want to be a part of his life and growing up and, you know, like a lot of dads, hopeful that he'd be interested in sports. I said, let's just give it seven years. And I, and I never gave a thought to my next job during that time. Uh, now within five years, I was asked to, to do other things and things started happening. Um, but I, I tell people that because the only I believe the only reason I was asked to move to the front office in Atlanta is because I was doing the job I had at that point and apparently doing it doing it well enough to get a promotion. Yeah. Um, so I've taken that same attitude along the way with every job I've been asked to do. Uh, so you guys, I'm married uh, and my wife is the absolute best, uh, but I cannot imagine her being pregnant. And me telling her I'm, I'm switching career paths and the job I'm taking pays less and will require me to travel more. Uh, I mean, big respect to JJ for following his heart. Um, huge respect to Nicole for supporting it. And uh, it's it's cool that this is where it's gone. You know what I mean? So um, 
Okay, guys, uh, that's the show. Thanks for keeping the questions clean. Thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Thanks to Monty Davis for putting this all together. And as always, the biggest thanks to you for joining and letting us be a small part of your life. Um, Okay, guys, have a great weekend. Be kind.